And I also hear quite often like, well, it's not really your art with AI unless you built the model to which it's like, well, did you build the camera? Um, or did you program the software for Photoshop or did you, it's just a, an argument I feel like is heard every time there's a significantly disruptive technology that comes into the creative, uh, creative world. Hi everyone. This is Sam NFT stats on Twitter. And we have a really fun episode today with Claire Silver. Uh, Claire is one of the pioneers of bringing AI art to NFTs. She's had some huge sales. Her Genesis piece on Super Rare went for over 50 ETH. But when she started, she struggled to sell pieces for 0.1 ETH. So we talk a bunch about AI art, just get an understanding for what it is and what her process is. But we also talk about her journey. Uh, starting from the ground up to being a real leader in the space. And then at the very end, we spend about 10 to 15 minutes talking about her takes on the industry, on punks, on being anonymous, on CC0, and a few other topics. Really enjoyed that part as well. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. I think she's one of the most authentic people in the space, really introspective, uh, and I hope you do too. Hi, everybody. This is Sam, NFT Stats on Twitter, and I'm just so excited to have Claire Silver here. Claire, how's it going? Hey, it's going really well. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Well, let's just, let's just jump right in to, to AI art, because I think you've really been, you know, one of the, one of kind of like the spokespeople for AI art and really kind of front and center when it comes to the space. What do you think that, uh, what do you think that people most misunderstand about AI art? Oh man, there's a there's a lot. That's a big question, but uh, something that I see very commonly is that it is uh, theft, uh, plagiarism, essentially, and that comes from a misconception that AI looks at other people's art and takes pieces of it and collages it together, kind of cobbles it into a piece. Um, that is not the case for current modern models. Um, they learn and imagine insofar as something non-sentient can do that. So what they do is they know that a hand has five fingers, that fingers are cylindrical, that they bend at a joint and joints work like this or that. And that Sargent, for example, paints hands with this sort of brushstroke or that sort of lighting. And it imagines what a piece might look like based on your parameters from what it's learned traits, um, as opposed to taking pieces of things and kind of photo bashing them together. Um, maybe that's a fine line for some people of distinction. I think it's very important to make. Um, makes a lot of difference for me. Why, why don't you Why don't you tell us about your AI art? Like, what 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 tools do you use? What uh, What's your basic process? Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of all over the place, right? It's constantly evolving as new tools come out. Um, as I have time, because they're coming out constantly. Uh, but right now, I'm using primarily stable diffusion. Um, I'm also using Deforum, which is a Google notebook for animation based on stable diffusion. Um, I'll use Dali for some pieces. Midjourney has had a great update recently with some beautiful results. So I'll feed pieces that I make in stable diffusion into Midjourney to get a more high quality result um, or Deforum or any of those. And I'm also using Runway ML for outpainting, which means you can put an image in with blank space around it and it will context aware fill um, the blank space to make it bigger. I'm also playing with Mubert, which is a text to music AI app um, that is really, really cool. So I'm adding some music to my work. Um, and EBSynth, which isn't technically AI, but I'm combining it with AI to make smooth video footage as opposed to frame by frame animation, which is what Deform is. Again, if you had to, so so a lot of those terms are over my head. I think probably over a lot of people's heads. Sorry, sorry, yeah. No, no, it's it's no problem at all. So, so just to like backtrack a little bit with stable diffusion. Can you just give a, a basic idea of what what does that actually do? Like what? Yeah. Just, so what's, the, what's the main thing there? The different models. So Dolly is a model. Midjourney is a model. Stable diffusion is a model. They're all different um, AI models essentially, and so they all have a different training set. Um, of images or information that it pulls from and stable diffusion. Uh, consequently, they all have sort of different looks and different languages even that you talk to them in. When you're using text to image, the way that you type what you want is different for each of them to get a good result. Stable diffusion is one of those models and it's the one that I resonate the most with, seems the most natural for me to work with. And um, most of the art that I've made recently has been from that model. So basically what makes all these models different is that they just take it so that they take 
millions of images? Is that how many they take and, and input them into their model? Yeah, I'm not actually sure on each model's data set in terms of how large it is or where exactly it's pulling from. But with the range that they have, you know, it's it's going to be massive um, data sets. They've also had different sort of checkpoints. So they'll do like an update um, and you can use the update or not, basically, in simplified terms. And those have different sort of data sets. So I know Stable Diffusion recently did a checkpoint update that removed not safe for work content. It also removed um, artists, like contemporary living artists from the data set. And they could sort of opt in with time or be re-added with time. Um, so there's a bunch of different, <laughs> the answer is there's a whole lot of different options to choose from. Um, and this one particular one, Stable Diffusion, is what I have been using the most, uh, particularly 1.5, which is an update um, checkpoint that I like. Got it. And And so you like it because it, for whatever reason, the images that they bring all together, put into the model, and then responds to the text you input, like that's just delivering results that you like the most. Yeah. The aesthetics that I work with are kind of, there's a lot of luminism, there's sort of glowy aesthetics. There's also a lot of painterly textured looks and stable diffusion is really good with those. But I've had great results putting those pictures into mid-journey as well. And then using that model to kind of interpret it. Um, that's given me beautiful work too. I, I like mixing models together. I think that's something people should try more. You get some interesting, unique results that way. So how does that work? So you, you would input the words into one model and then you would... Take the image mm -hmm, okay. and put it into another model. And then you can choose what percentage of that image you would like it to retain and what percentage you would like it to reimagine. And then type a new text prompt or the same into that new model and have it reimagine the entire thing. Um, there's also in painting, which is where you can select particular parts of the image and tell it by text what you would like it to change into, and it will transform just that piece. So I've been playing with some collage-like uh, work that way. Got it. I thought we'd do this later, but why don't we just jump into one of these images and okay. maybe I would love to just kind of go over what your process was. Sure. Um, so why don't we start with this one? I mean, first of all, congrats. Thank <laughs> like you. Having a Genesis on Super Rare, what, what is a 52 ETH, 52.69 ETH? Yeah, which was around 90,000 at the time. It was a huge, huge deal for me. I could not believe it. That's awesome. It. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I put out a, a newsletter every day, and every day one thing I'd like to include is what was the highest Super Rare sale. And I can, after doing that for the past, today was my 69th episode, my 69th newsletter, <laughs> I can appreciate just how massive a 50 ETH sale is on Super Rare. So, Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. That is awesome. awesome. How, um, yeah. So, so let's start with this one. Like what would you take us from like blank canvas? How do you like, and I don't know the extent to which what input you put in is confidential or, uh, or, or kind of what makes you unique and you don't share that, but I'd be curious kind of, yeah. Why don't you walk us through this piece? How did you, how did you start and get to where you ended? Yeah, totally. So this piece in particular was using a model I didn't mention. Um, it's called prose painter. Um, by Joel Simon and the Art Breeder team, Studio Morphogen. Uh, that was the first AI model I ever used was Art Breeder. It was called Gan Breeder back then. Um, so a special place in my heart. Rose Painter was their next project. And essentially the way it worked is you would give it an image, you would type in text what you wanted it to be, but you could select uh, using, in my case, an Apple Pencil and an iPad, whatever you wanted in the image, set it to a low opacity and transform it just a little tiny bit at a time. So what it ended up doing was making an AI version of kind of like a glaze painting where you do very thin, semi-transparent layers um, and stack them up over time. Uh, and so it would have an effect that would be like the old master paintings, in my opinion, which I loved. So what this piece started as was I had a piece in the Sotheby's London Contemporary Day auction uh, in March of this year, and that was a huge milestone for me. So I took a selfie of myself, uh, actually, in the uh, changing room downstairs getting ready, and I was so nervous. Um, but I took a selfie, and then I used that as the initial image for this, went into Prose Painter, and um, low opacity layer built up over time very slowly. This uh, sort of master painting, sort of anime aesthetic kind of uh, self-portrait. And so I felt like it was a new look, especially for the time. It was me, but it was also anonymous. Uh, it was old and it was new and it felt very in the moment. Um, so that was my genesis on Super Rare and Batsupium bought it, uh, which I am forever grateful for. Changed my life um, and I'm very happy that it's in his collection. 
That's awesome. Was it this blood in the streets late to the ball? Was that the piece? That was the piece for Sotheby's. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which was the same process. That was uh, a 3D model that I had, uh, a 3D render I had made that I used as an initial image and did the same process in Prose Painter uh, layers. Got it. So I'm putting this one up here. What what, what was the starting point for this image? Uh, That was a 3D render that I had made when I was trying to teach myself 3D. Um, And I thought it was actually the day that the markets crashed. It was January. Um, and I, I think maybe the, the night of that, I was worried because I had been through a bear market before and I knew everyone was going to leave and I didn't want them to go. And so I had made this piece as uh, Blood in the Streets Late to the Ball came from a 4chan post I had seen uh, in the last crash, 2016, um, which was kind of like a parable about markets, which was there's this incredible ball happening, a gala, and everybody's having the best time of their lives and no one wants to leave. But at midnight, death will crash through the door and kill everyone. Um, but there are no hands on any of the clocks. So no one wants to leave because it's the best night of their life. But they have to before it crashes. But there's no way to tell the time. And so uh, this piece was kind of a, an echo of that uh, on the day of the crash. And it was actually initially titled, uh, Is This a Revolution or Are We Just Playing House Here? <laughs> but uh, I ended up changing it for, uh, for Sotheby's. Well, one thing... Well, two things jumped to mind. First of all, um, that you say it was the day of the crash. I'm like, I think there've been like 10 since then. So I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah. I don't even remember what the day you're talking one. about. Yeah. But yeah, no, things were, uh, the markets were very strong at the end of last year and the beginning of this year. The second thing though, is I love how you incorporate your own self into your work. And I, I think I remember hearing you say that, that part of what kind of you do to connect yourself with collectors and to just kind of create this ongoing theme is somehow try to put imprints of yourself into your work. Yeah. Um, do you want to say more about that theme? Is, is that an accurate representation of, of, of how, how you think about it? It is. And I, I don't do that for every piece these days. Um, my early work all had that. Um, usually around 7% of myself I would mix in by uploading a photo and mixing it in with a bunch of other stuff um, to get around 7% me. Into each photo being anonymous, it felt like kind of a wink and a nod to collectors that they have sort of a piece of me. Um, but I don't do that every time now. There's too many, <laughs> there's too many beautiful images that I want to share uh, that that don't start that way. Going to a separate topic here, um, pink hair. Like, do you did the did the <laughs> pink hair come up, come about because of the punk? Is that something that's been with you for longer? Um, I personally love it. I mean, we can go into how we both have pink hair for totally, totally yeah. separate reasons, but, um, yeah, uh-huh. what, what's the relationship there? So I had pink hair as a teenager. I had a, a goth, uh, upbringing <laughs> and it's still very close to my heart and my aesthetic. Um, the pink haired punk was, uh, a gift, which I can get into if you'd like, but it was gifted to me, um, the day of, or maybe the day after claim, I think it was the day of claim, um, when they were about 10 cents. And so I've kept it since then. And it's funny because as I've been using her as a digital identity, I've gotten so attached to her that when I pass a mirror and don't have pink hair, it feels kind of jarring, which is weird to say, maybe a little sad, but uh, it's the truth. And so, yeah, my, my representations of myself online are kind of a mix of me with, uh, with a pink haired punk for sure. Do, do you have any, I mean, I see so many different pink haired derivatives in your wallet and mm-hmm. kind of the work. Is there any like favorite art that you feel like really has represented you that someone else has made? Oh, it's, it's very hard to say. I love all of the, I'm, I'm a sucker for, for fan art, um, or, or tribute art. Um, I have a lot, I'm lucky to have a lot, but one, I think the first, uh, major piece I can remember was from Filippo Mugnai, who is a young, uh, painter, digital painter. Um, and he made maybe four pieces for me um, of my, of my punk, uh, based on things I was tweeting about. So I got COVID and he wanted to make me feel better. So he did a piece of me feeling better essentially and, and different things like that. And, uh, those are close to my heart, <laughs> but I love them all. Very cool. Let, before we leave this, before we kind of leave going over your art, why don't we do, why don't we do another, uh, kind of take on this one you said this was a 33.3 ETH. Sale, yeah. Yeah. Which is just wild. Um, why, why, yeah, why don't you take us through kind of like the history of this piece? How did, what was the canvas here? And it looks, it looks very different, I think, from your other work. Yeah, thank you. I, so that was from the AI Art Is Not Art collection. It was 500 pieces. I think they minted at 0.1 or 0.2, uh, not, very, not very much. 
And uh, this piece in particular was combining 3D aesthetics with um, Van Gogh and uh, a few other, Cezanne, I think. And so, um, and then the anime aesthetics, of course. So the point of the collection was I was taking uh, art movements that were historically discounted as not art or the death of art uh, and mixing them all together into something new with AI as a, as a statement. And um, this piece in particular was minted by a supporter of mine um, from my Braindrops collection, which was my initial uh, collection of 500 before this. Um, longtime supporter, wonderful person, artist, and uh, they minted it for very little and then set it at kind of a mean price because it was 333, page 333. They set it at 33.3 Ethereum and Moderat's Art bought it uh, outright for 33.3, which changed their life. They were able to move um, and be able to support themselves making art for a year, as I understand it. Um, still ongoing. And so that was very special to me that something I made and something that he collected were able to uh, change someone else's life like that. Congrats. Thanks. <laughs> That's something that I, I feel like you you hear that I, like as, you know, with NFTs, just one thing you're, you're regularly hearing is just the, I guess the validation or, or, or just the great feeling that comes with people who've, who've made these investments that just worked out really, really well. Yeah. It's always, I'm, I'm sure from your side as the artist where it's literally just your own creation, that's like an incredible feeling. It is absolutely an incredible feeling and they've changed my life. So it's like, I, I understand how they feel and I'm so happy about it. <laughs> so, so with something like, for which, which software did you use for this, uh, for this piece? So this one was an earlier build of Stable Diffusion for the centerpiece, the figure. And then the sides were built out with uh, Dolly outpainting. So that's the content aware fill. Um, so I would use a similar prompt and just cycle through until I was able to get uh, sides, a background essentially that matched, and then stitch them together in Photoshop and do a little bit of painting uh, to kind of blend. Nice. And how, how, how long does the average piece take you to, to put together? Well, it depends. These were... Maybe. I mean, it's something that I worked on for months and months and months, but as far as actually finalizing and stitching together, it was a couple hours maybe um, for each. But my one of ones take a long time, typically. They're, they don't always, and I'm actually not sold on the idea of time put in being the measure of worth for art, but typically my, my one of ones do take me quite a while. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I can see where the idea of time worth like i've heard you in your other podcast compare photography with yeah. AI art mm -hmm. like there was a time when for an artist like considering somebody who just took a picture uh may have felt like it was too quick to be true art and and you're getting perhaps the same pushback with ai do you want to elaborate a little bit there yeah and actually i have a great uh segue on that if i can find it while i think about it here may have to uh I had posted a thread this morning saying, I've got a podcast today. If you could tell a broad audience one thing about AI, what would it be? And primarily what I heard was try it uh, for yourself. But one person, uh, Alejandro Cartagena, who is uh, an incredible artist, said in 1863, the great French poet Baudelaire famously declared photography to be the refuge of every would-be painter, every painter too ill-endowed or too lazy to complete his studies. And here we are now with AI being described the same way. Uh, and that I, I think resonates very much for me. The same arguments of you just push a button, uh, you didn't make that. Um, and I also hear quite often like, well, it's not really your art with AI unless you built the model to which it's like, well, did you build the camera? Um, or did you program the software for Photoshop? Or did you? It's just a, an argument I feel like is heard every time there's a significantly disruptive technology that comes into the creative uh, creative world. Yeah. You know, one thing that, that occurred to me listening to some of your, the way you've described it is the idea of, you know, taking inputs from around you and, and building art out of that. It kind of made me think of like a decorator or interior designer or, you know, someone who, who puts spaces together using other kind of using work that they didn't necessarily build themselves, but to make something that really fits together quite well and, and that they've created their own mm. using those other inputs. Mm -hmm. I mean, does does that feel like a fair analogy? Yeah, I, I think that's probably comparable in some ways. A lot of uh, working with AI is uh, it's curation. So you'll make, you know, thousands of images and you'll curate it down to five and you'll share one maybe. 
Um, and so it's, it's taking existing sort of images that you've made collaboratively with the AI and uh, curating down from there. And I, I have this quote, uh, which is probably overused now, but it's uh, taste is the new skill. Um, my idea with that is just that if AI levels the playing field in terms of skill by augmenting skill, then your taste uh, is going to be the definitive sort of deciding factor for whether or not uh, that work stands out. Um, I'm not sure if taste can be taught at this point. I, I sort of had a different feeling about it back then when I first started saying it, but I, I think it may be intrinsic and dependent upon your life experiences and uh, your ability to express. I do think you can develop it by looking at a lot of work and kind of like when I first started looking at AI, everything was impressive to me. And now I'm much more yeah. discerning, right? Um, but I think that kind of goes along with what you're asking in that it's sort of a, a curation process as well as, as well as a creation process. Speak a bit to that when you say you're more discerning. Who are some of the artists that you respect the most in the AI space? Oh, that's a difficult question, too, because I, I respect and love so many uh, artists that I don't want to discourage anyone by not naming them. But uh, I just had um, kind of a joint show with Super Chief gallery uh, for Basil at Scope of a lot of AI artists. Um, there are so many. Some of the names you probably know, uh, Jenny Passanon is one that I really love. Gan Brood, of course, is fantastic. Ivana Tao. Um, Rafik Anadol is brilliant, of course. Uh, and the MoMA had an exhibition of his work recently, which was a hallmark for both AI and NFTs. Um, but there are also a lot of not smaller, I, was, I would say emerging artists. Um, Infinite Yay is one I really enjoy. This guy named Marco uh, on Twitter that makes some beautiful photorealistic portraits. Blake Wood is kind of pioneering this post-photography movement with AI. Um, and I think his work is fantastic. There's, there's too many. <laughs> there's, I mean, just in that one show alone, we were just like 30-something artists. Um, there's a lot. Yeah. And what do you look for? So I pulled up Jenny Passanon's work. A lot of these names are new to me, so I'm kind of learning as we go here. What What are the things you look for that make you really think like that an art that an AI artist has unique talent? So initially, I would have said a, a cohesive, persistent style. Um, I don't think that's true anymore. I kind of think that AI art will push people towards collections, almost like blue period or you know different periods in an artist's life uh, where they make a bunch of paintings that are sort of in that style and then they shift. I think we might be going more towards that again, um, as opposed to being able to look at a piece and say, you know, that's a Warhol, um, that kind of thing. Uh, it's hard to, it's hard to describe sort of the internal intrinsic pull of just knowing. I think that is what taste is. You just sort of know. But typically these days I look for work that stands out from the crowd. Rupe Renisto, that's that's one of my favorite AI artists in the space. He won my uh, AI art contest, the second one that I had done. Uh, Nate Talbot won the first. But his work, Rupi Renisto, is photorealistic. It's animation, and it's sort of this haunting sort of dance-based movement. Uh, comes with music accompaniment, and it's uh, it makes you feel something. It looks different from the rest, and it makes you feel something intrinsically. It just kind of even with even with subjective disparate tastes that everyone has, everyone sort of agreed that he should have been the winner of that contest. And so clearly there's some undercurrent that we can't quite put into words with AI art that uh, stands out. What was the artist's name again? Uh, Rupe Renisto. So it's R-O-O-P-E and then R-A-I-N-I-S-T-O. Uh, I think his pinned tweet at the top is the piece that won my contest. I, I'm still trying to figure this all together, but how you got that piece is, is like clearly, there's just clearly a lot there. Um, yeah. so why don't we, why don't we kind of yeah. change tracks a little bit? Tell me a little bit about, about your personal background, how you got into NFTs originally and, and what kind what got you here? I may ramble a little, so feel free to cut me off because this is convoluted, but it is uh, pretty integral. So, uh, my prior career had nothing to do with art or tech. It was more uh, humanities-based. Um, I got a debilitating, life-changing uh, chronic illness I'm currently in remission from, um, autoimmune illness, uh, and it stopped me from being able to work. 
So I had several years where I was stuck at home, uh, lonely, depressed, and spent a lot of time on the internet, uh, obviously. So for me, that was 4chan. Uh, 2016, I was on 4chan a lot. Um, and there are lots of different boards on 4chan. It's sort of like subreddits in the different communities for different boards. So I started out on kind of this lonely, sad, isolated people kind of board. Um, that's what I resonated with at the time. And then I, um, I eventually got bored enough that I decided to teach myself to paint as a way to pass the time and express myself. Uh, so I started with acrylic and went into oil. And 4chan has an art board, uh, I see is the board. And so I spent a lot of time on there, getting tips and tricks and kind of getting in the community. And one day someone showed up and basically said, hey, you sad sacks, since you're spending all day drawing anyway, why don't you invest in cryptocurrency and maybe make your life better? Um, it's like, this is, this is absolutely a trap. Like this is clearly predatory, but I have nothing better to do. I'm going to look at it. And so it redirected to the biz boards, which were the, um, business and finance cryptocurrency boards of 4chan. And I got sucked in and I had very little money. Um, but I did have some disability essentially uh, that I was living on. And so I just started investing small amounts into an altcoin, which did not pan out. And I won't tell you which one, so I don't get made fun of. Uh, but, uh, I was on a Slack chat for this, uh, altcoin and it was the day that CryptoPunks came out and I had just missed claim and I was really bummed about it. And someone in there was like, Hey, well, I claimed 730. Do you want three? They were about 10 cents at the time. And I was like, yeah, you know? And so he said, hold them till they're in the MoMA. Uh, and I said, I would, and I did. And the crash happened and I kind of forgot about everything and continued with art and then in 2020, I had heard about uh, the market and CryptoPunks and Super Rare and everything coming back. So I started looking into it. And that guy turned out to be Mr. 703, who is a very well-respected uh, member of the early CryptoPunks community and collector uh, and supporter of AI art. So he collects some of my work. But how I got into AI art specifically, I should touch on that, which was during that time period when I was painting and being at home online a lot, I watched Westworld, uh, the TV show. I don't know if you've seen it. But uh, it was fascinating to me. It had just come out. I loved it so much. And um, it got me thinking about a future that had solved for illnesses like mine, where AI had sort of removed some of these human evils that plague us. And I went down the rabbit hole and started Googling and uh, found GAN Breeder, which has become Art Breeder, which is an early AI no-code accessible art tool. And I spent, you know, upwards of, 12, 14 hours a day for a couple of weeks, just obsessively creating with it. Couldn't stop, made tens of thousands of images. Um, and there were a handful that I felt like were good enough to be art that I considered art, but I didn't know if anyone else would. And so I started minting them in late 2020, early 2021. Mr. 703 picked up a couple of pieces and then it kind of snowballed from there with different collectors coming in and my floor slowly raising until the Batsoup Yum sale on Super Rare. Um, and now I'm kind of pushing into the traditional art world. I'm trying to get some museum representation for AI art, um, gallery representation, things like that. Well, it looked like you already sold on Sotheby's. So you have, that's true. You have some, <laughs> I'd say that's a pretty big accomplishment for real world uh, art <laughs> kind of traction. I appreciate that. What was that. What was that like going from this new medium to selling? You know, I think for, it's so hard for people to sell their work to think people want to pay for it. What, what was that like for you, given it was a new medium for you? It was intimidating at first. I had this thing where I loved the raw output without me painting into anything of the AI, but I didn't think that anyone else would consider it art and I was insecure about it. So I started painting into it as a way of kind of compromising and I loved that work. But over time, I sort of circled back to no raw output is beautiful and that's primarily what I work with now. Um, but yeah, my first few sales were the $200, it was like 0.08 or something at the time. Um, and then I kind of was just early loud, <laughs> early and loud about AI, uh, passionate about where it was going, what it was going to be, how much it was going to transform the world, what a tool it was. Um, and I think that caught the eye of some collectors that thought it was a, a chance that they could take. And so they started supporting me and that gave me more confidence. I remember at one point I couldn't sell a piece for I think it was around 0.08 still. I, I couldn't sell work at that point. Collectors had dried up. And I thought about quitting. 
And instead, I took everything down and relisted a few pieces at one Ethereum each, and they started selling right away. So that taught me a lesson about valuing yourself and, uh, and what you're saying, having a, a belief in, in what you say that others will resonate with that. It, that, I mean, that that's like a story I've heard you say. And as I heard that, I was like, this is a shocking story. <laughs> because, this is so crazy because you went from having a price that was 0. 0.08 ETH and nothing would move. And then you moved it to one ETH and suddenly people want yeah. it. Yeah. And it goes against so many, I mean, it goes against so many economic principles. Mm. Um, I can't remember the principle. There, there's one that a lot of, a lot of board apes like to talk about it. Um, basically this idea that as things get more expensive, that people want them yeah. more. Um, and it's generally used for luxury types of goods. Mm. Um, and I think we all feel that with NFTs, like no one wants a pudgy penguin at like 0.5, <laughs> but then they're hitting four ETH and we all feel FOMO. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting that you saw that directly with your very own work. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just, uh, and I, I've experienced that myself as a collector. You know, I, when, when art that I think is gorgeous is priced too low, I sort of wonder if the artist doesn't believe in themselves or, and, and that's a bias I shouldn't have. Everybody's at a different place. Um, but I've noticed it in myself as well. So I, for me, it worked out really well to raise it to a price that I felt good about parting with it for, that I had no regrets about. Um, that, that worked out very well for me. That's awesome. Um, you know, you said the idea of you, you being very loud. And I think that's something I, you know, we had Grant Yoon on the podcast too. And he, he just said like, I shove my art down people's throats, (laughs) which is a little bit more of an aggressive terminology for what you said, Mm -hmm. but what, what is it for you? What does it mean to be loud about your art? Yeah. So back, back in the beginning, there were very few AI artists that were selling work. Um, and so it was kind of a novelty. Uh, looked at as amusing, maybe. Um, and I was just very vocal any chance I had about how much I believed in not just my work, but the movement as a whole, where I thought it was going. I started doing some just kind of conceptual posts on AI. And whenever I did see others' work that resonated with me, I would either buy it or retweet it, talk about it, that kind of thing. Then with a little bit of time, people started getting upset at it. And you know, some of the same arguments we're seeing now, I saw back then just in smaller supply. So I would take the time to be patient and compassionate and understanding uh, and sort of walk them through why they felt that way and kind of have a conversation. Didn't always work out, but I did my best. Even if it didn't convince the person, I feel like lurkers, uh, other people would see that and that it was worth doing for that reason, kind of plant the seeds. So I've just continued that uh, as this has grown. And we've sort of moved from ignoring to ridicule to anger and then acceptance and then it's now gone back again so it's almost like the the cycles of the market and that it's bigger every time this i would say is my second sort of go around of that cycle and we're currently in anger obviously on a big scale um but there's a lot more people being loud about it now than just me there's a lot of people that believe in this movement and are doing great things for it and some of the artists that i've supported have gone on to host uh, emerging art AI shows and uh, do some of these things that I had wished I could do back then. And I'm very inspired by them. Um, so I hope it grows every, every time. I, I'm, I'm intrigued by what you said. You, you think like right now we're in a moment of anger. Oh like yeah. This is a, an, an angry <laughs> yeah, moment. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the hate is unreal. I mean, hundred thousand like threads on how AI is uh, grifter, scam, plagiarism, theft, uh, trying to replace artists, taking the soul out of art, the death of art, the death of human creativity. It'll take everyone's jobs and we'll all be slaves for our corporate masters. You name it. It's it's uh, massive. And the level of vitriol that these artists are experiencing is higher than I had to experience when I was at their level. Um, and they're very brave and they're very passionate and they inspire me to not get fatigue, I suppose. Um, but I think we'll probably have at least one or two more of these cycles <laughs> before it really hits mainstream acceptance. So I'm glad there are more artists joining and I couldn't, I couldn't do it myself. Yeah. I mean, that, that's one thing that I, that I kind of noticed when hearing your other podcasts and, and just kind of thinking about what you do is how tiring it must be that so much of your work as an art is actually just defending the art form as opposed to digging into the work you do. Um, and being someone who represents your work, 
just feels like there's a lot of attention that has to be placed on simply like justifying the existence of this media. Yeah, and I would say that's unfortunate, but at the same time, it's kind of a cool position to be in because I get to make art about that specifically. Like my AI art is not art collection was about that specifically, um, making a statement on that. I, I kind of like doing meta commentary on the movement and the medium within my work. And so one statement I've been seeing a lot recently is, uh, sure, it's beautiful, but does it say something <laughs> about AI art? It's like, well, first of all, art doesn't have to say something, but even if it does, uh, that's kind of the, the thing I'm hearing is like, there's all of these different arguments against it. And the most current one, one of the most current ones is that there's no meaning, there's no soul behind it. It's just pretty. Um, so I made some work that I felt was representative of that kind of argument and counter argument and posted it, didn't mint it. But I don't know. It's sort of like how I'm not that I would ever compare myself to X copy for goodness sake, but X copy does meta commentary with his work on uh, the market and on crypto uh, culture. And I feel like the hate and the conversation leaves an opportunity open for AI artists to do the same with their work, um, which is kind of a time capsule of this emerging art form, which is pretty cool. What's interesting is this this conversation is kind of happening side by side with the emerge like your pieces selling for over fifty ETH. With you know, I, I track your 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 brain drops collection and recently went from like a one and a half ETH floor to three and a half ETH floor. Like it seems like maybe the vitriol that your experience is kind of also happening in parallel with a collector base that's starting to appreciate this work. So we <laughs> say this is the future. Like, are you noticing that trend happening kind of side by side? Yeah, and I mean we're in a bear market, so it's harder to have sales right now anyway across the board. Um, but I am finding that, yeah, more collectors, more galleries, more museums, uh, festivals like Basel, they're all kind of waking up to, it might be in part because of the vitriol, right? Because if there's that much conversation happening around an emerging art form, it's worth talking about. Um, impressionism got a lot of hate. Photography got a lot of hate. Photoshop, digital art. Uh, I often compare it to the invention of synthesizers for music. And, you know, you're not real musicians. You don't play any instruments, that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, it's it's a transformative uh, tool that's going to change more than just art. It's going to change the entire world. So these are kind of artifacts of the early days of what I think will be kind of an epoch. <laughs> It'll be a, a different chapter in human history. These are the early artifacts of that. So collectors, I think, are starting to come around to that point of view. Yeah. Um Kind of talking, shifting the conversation a little bit away from AI and more just towards NFTs in general. Um, what, what's your general advice for someone who is starting, who, who, who's an artist of any medium and wants to be an NFT artist and for kind of making it in this I think space? it's a great time for them. I think bear markets are a much better time to come in than bull markets and try and find a, a foothold. Um, I would say value your work at what you feel is good to let go of it for. Don't undersell yourself and don't oversell yourself out of greed. It's a difficult mark to land on, but try and think of a price that would make you feel good and try and stick to that. Um, when you make a sale, either post the next sale for the same basic price or a little higher, not a huge jump higher, but certainly not lower if you can help it. Um, community is very important. One thing that's been extremely helpful to me, uh, maybe the most helpful to me, is when my art was selling well, I would lean into that and make a lot of art and talk about art and push into that. And when sales started to wane, I would lean back into community building, uh, opportunities for other artists, uh, doing interviews, things like that. And then when that started to slow down, swing back into the art. So it's kind of a pendulum between community and art um, that builds momentum for you in a way that I don't know anything else does in this market. Um, and then connect with your collectors. And I'm actually pretty terrible at this because I have a, a collector discord for braindrops, uh, and a few other places. And I am terrible at discord and I don't use it as much as I should. But if you are someone that can do that, having kind of a centralized place for your collectors to meet and chat about your work is integral. Uh, I probably would be doing a lot better if I was better with that. <laughs> And if you see someone who's kind of emerging, are there any things that you look for when you when you're looking at like up and coming artists and you say, I think this person has what it takes to to make it as an NFT artist? Like what are what are those types of things that give you that signal? I'll often just collect work because I absolutely love it. And clearly the artist has something that I, I resonate with, whether or not they've been around or whether or not I think they'll stick around. If I love the art, I'll buy it. But 
typically uh, some time spent in the market. I would say five, six months would be ideal. Um, where they're still creating work, even if they're not selling, where they're still devoting a little bit of time, even if they have a day job, other responsibilities, they're taking, uh, you know, one post a day uh, to be present. That matters to me. That shows uh, persistence and staying power, um, passion. And then the quality of the work, obviously, um, being not just a one-off, being uh, consistently high quality or higher quality as they progress um, learning new things, learning new tools, taking new influences. I love curious people. That uh, appeals to me. And I'm very conflicted on the topic of scarcity. I feel like it absolutely terrifies artists, including myself. Um, it's uh, not something I'm crazy about, but I do understand that that is how a lot of markets operate. That's the human psyche. So I would say don't mint uh, don't flood your market right away just because your prices are low. I would say maybe 30 to 50 pieces at a low price to start building a community is a good idea. Um, and then kind of consider whether you want to do collections or additions or one of one or plan it out, essentially have a, have a, have a strategy. Um, I, I tend to buy it from artists there. What do you mean that people, I'm sorry, what what do you mean that people are terrified of scarcity? So For myself personally, it's like scarcity is what makes prices go up because the rarer something is, the less people can have it and the more they want it uh, because of status or or investments or whatever else. Um, So you want to keep your supply low so that scarcity is high so that you can justify uh, a rise essentially in price and in notoriety. Um, At the same time, you get to a certain point with that and there's only a very small handful of collectors in the market that can support you at that point. And eventually their appetite is full, right? They have enough in their investment that they feel secure and they move on to a different artist that's more emerging and then your market's dried up. So then at that point you can release more work as collections or additions, but it devalues the current work that your collectors have supported you at because it you know, increases supply. So scarcity goes down. So then it's not rewarding your collectors, it's hurting them. Um, it's a very difficult thing, and I've struggled with it a lot, uh, knowing how to navigate that. Uh, and I don't have the answer, honestly. What I've been doing is making work frequently, but minting work scarcely, being content to let work sit for a while, and only doing collections or editions maybe once a year, if that. Um, but I don't know how it'll work out. I'm, I'm kind of learning as I go. It is one of those things. It's it's kind of like wh- what we talked about earlier, how you raise your prices and contrary to any economic yeah. model that was act or not any economic model, but that was like, I think there's something there with NFTs where, um, you know, there's this idea that less is always more, but you know, I think you notice who is emerging and who is kind of on the scene based on collectors tweeting about their work. And there is something too. And Correct me if this, is, if this has not been your experience, but I think there is something to also getting enough supply out there that you have a lot of people who want you to who want yeah. you to succeed and who who want to be your marketing channel. Um, it's one of the reasons that like PFPs are such amazing or are such successful NFTs is you have so many people who are just marketing your work with their very identity yeah. and existence. But I think with with art, there is a happy medium there where you where you want, like, I, I see this with drifter shoots and, and kind of where my vans go. He has 150 pieces in there. I feel like I'm seeing those images pop up a lot. Like they're advocates who want him to do well, but it's not too much. I don't know. I feel like there's, there's like a blend there. Yeah, totally. And I, I would say if you would like to do a larger body of work, uh, in the beginning to build a community, that's a smart thing to do. I would advise doing it as a collection. So that it's kind of self-contained and not as uh, a group of one of ones. I wouldn't mint 50 one of ones. I'd make a collection of 50 and then do four one of ones or something for the year. What, what's been your, so what, what, what has been your cadence? Like what was your, when you started out, what, which collection was it that you said was selling at 0.08 and you moved it to one E? So it wasn't a collection. It, those were one of ones, but I think it was 12 ish that I had put out in the very, very beginning. Um, those were selling for those lower prices and they were primarily bought by Mr. 703. He, he, uh, grabbed up a whole bunch of them. Um, and then I, what was that? What was that? Collect- if I'm looking for it on OpenSea, what was that one called? Uh, it wasn't a collection, but if you go to OpenSea, it wouldn't be the Claire also, it would be Claire silver. It's two different wallets. 
um, and then sort by oldest. The ones at the bottom are the ones that he bought, but it wasn't a collection. The first collection that I did was Braindrops um, with Justin Trimble leading, um, and then Gene Kogan and Pindar Van Armen were the other two artists involved in the drop. They did their own collections with it. So mine was 500 pieces. It was called Genesis, minted out for, I think, 0.1 each. Um, and last I checked, it was at 5 ETH floor, which was pretty cool. Um, but I pulled it up here. It looks like a yeah, 5.27 ETH floor. Not bad. Yeah. So that made me- And this was at like one and a half when I started tracking in September. I feel like this has really had a move. Yeah. I'm very happy to see that. I hope that that's to do with, um, again, being loud and, and vocal about AI, hopefully making kind of a- a footnote in art history, I suppose. Not a page, but a footnote. Um, each piece in this collection was a different concept uh, related to either the cryptocurrency market, the NFT market, or tech concepts, whether that's uh, AI-related or um, senescence, I'm very interested in as well. Dif- different things like that. And so the idea is that each uh, name would lead you down a rabbit hole if you Googled it, where you could learn more about it. And eventually I collaged all 500 pieces into one giant piece and set up a riddle um, based on the names. And I had, I I wanted a friend. And so I had made it so that whoever solved the riddle would have a mind like mine. Uh, And so I would make a friend and they would get the piece. And uh, Jackie Courtney, uh, who runs Qualia Dow, um, solved it. She made Qualia Dow with that as kind of the foundational piece of the vault. And yeah, we have a very similar background, very similar mind. She's a very good friend of mine. So it worked out for me. But uh, my, yeah, my concept with this was just to get people thinking and talking about these sort of things, people smarter than I was. I feel like no one was talking about it at the time. That's awesome. And I, I, this is something I, I've like, no, you didn't mention it, but like this riddle and getting your community to rally around you and um, the contests you do, getting your community to be talking about that contest. It does feel like you lead your community in a way that just brings attention to your work and brings them together and kind of brings them closer to you as an artist. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't say that was my intention. Um, my intention with the contest was I wanted to buy AI art. <laughs> I had just made the big sale um, to bats a couple of months prior, or, or maybe it was even that it was very close. And I had a lot of ETH and I wanted to support AI artists and I couldn't find work that I liked uh, enough to buy, which was sad. Um, And so I made the contest as like a let's push the bar forward. Let's encourage people to try and really push themselves to to progress the medium. And they did, uh, in my opinion. I think the quality of work went up a lot. So I patroned them and then did the second contest. And I feel like the quality jumped leaps and bounds as well. And yeah, I've, I've sort of somehow become this strange sort of figurehead, I guess, uh, in the specifically NFT uh, AI art community. What's awesome about it is that you bring so much authenticity to it. And I, I feel like you, you allow your Twitter to be vulnerable. Like you're authentically wanting to buy other people's work and be a spokesperson for this. And you know, I th- that's just something I, I, I see with artists a lot. It's very hard to try to do what's worked for someone else. But with you, I feel like your authenticity your honesty, like you're naturally someone who rallies people together and it all just kind of has built this brand into something that's quite special. Thank you. I appreciate that. I feel just as surprised as everyone else that it's turned out this way, but I I do feel very lucky uh, to have the chance and I I hope I do it justice. Uh, I feel like pedestals are slim and shaky things. And so there are times when I am afraid of uh, being a figurehead for, for this movement, but, um, so far, so good. I certainly mean it when I say I'm passionate about it. I mean everything I say about it. So, so then after Braindrops, it was, it was Braindrops. Then what was the next uh, collection you dropped? The next one was AI Art is Not Art. That was the next year. Uh, so this year, uh, that was with Mirage Gallery, August Rosedale. Um, really, I think that's an incredible platform, an incredibly smart person. And so that one was meta commentary on uh, the argument that AI art is not art, which is what we were seeing at that point. Um, again, combining different movements that had had the same argument levied against it into something new. Did very well. Uh, had a lot of excitement around it. I loved seeing it. Um, Twitter blew up on that day with posts, people posting the art, and it was so cool to see. Um, the argument has kind of moved from AI art is not art to AI art is not your art now. So that's good. We've moved the, moved the goalposts. Progress. Uh, yeah. And now it's moving to, it's starting to move to 
AI is your art in part, but only because you're tracing or stealing from other artists. So then that's the next goalpost that we're moving towards. Uh, and I don't know what it'll be after that, but uh, there's going to be <laughs> there's going to be several, I think, uh, goalposts to hit before it's acceptance and starting over in the next cycle of uh, yeah of AI. Cool, cool. And was and was that your last collection, or is there another one? That is then? my that was my last collection. Next year, I have a smaller one that I'm going to do. Um, I can't talk about it too much, but I can say that it is inspired by Braindrops, and we'll be working on kind of building out that world with newer tools. Um, as opposed to something entirely new, like AI art is not art. Um, I want to kind of build out the collections that I already have in ways that hopefully drive attention back to those collections. Cool. Well, last thing I want to do um, is go over, and this is a, a bit of a, a change of topic, but just go over some kind of, you're you're not just an artist, but you're also someone who is active in the space. You're a collector, you're a punks owner. So just kind of curious, quick takes on a few things that are that are <laughs> happening out there. Okay. What is what 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 has been your experience as a punk? What's your what having owned a punk for five years? How has the punk community evolved over the past five years? Yeah, I well, so real quick. First of all, I have had three punks. I sold one. My mom needed some surgery. It was the right time. I sold one. Um, would have gone for a lot higher if I hadn't sold it. Then learned my lesson, but needed it at the time. Um, but the punks community. It's funny. I, I first came into the NFT space through the punks chat on discord, Justin Trimble's chat. Um, that's where I reconnected with Mr. 703 and, and met a lot of people, uh, Jeebs, Snowfro, et cetera. And it occurred to me that everyone there had kind of their own thing that they were doing. D's had, uh, you know, the, the Twitter, it wasn't Twitter spaces at the time. It was like clubhouse and different things, but he was sort of going this sort of social community focused route. Um, Snowfro had generative art and art blocks. Uh, they, they all sort of had their thing. And so I wanted to be one of them <laughs> and I wanted my own thing and I loved AI art and nobody had it yet. And so I kind of dug in um, and it's worked out very well. But I feel that punks are the most well-connected, uh, intelligent, passionate group of people that I have ever met anywhere. I feel very privileged to be involved with them in any way. Um, and they've opened more doors for me than my college degree, than any of my prior careers. It's, uh, just an absolutely incredible network of passionate, like-minded people. And one more thing on that, something that I felt back then when punks were at their highest was owning a punk instead of trading it in for the equivalent fiat or ETH value was sort of a visual, uh, vote of confidence in what they represented. And in the space, it was saying, saying something with your wallet, so to speak. Um, by keeping it instead of taking the money. And so that endeared them to me even more because I admire uh, passionate people that speak up for what they believe in. And that's what that felt like it was. I'm going to pull up your punk here. Um, this punk, is, this is yours, right? 1629? Yeah. Yeah. She's become so much part of your identity. What about her? Like go, go through the traits. What about her <laughs> embodies Claire Silver? Well, the black lipstick, I told you I grew up goth, right? So the black lipstick is an immediate sell for me. It's awesome. Uh, the pink hair, I had pink hair when I was younger, uh, and loved it. Uh, pretty similar style, actually. Um, actually, uh, I've considered cutting it and dyeing it, but it, I feel it would be too obvious at events and I'm anon. Um, so I have a little, uh, wig that sometimes I break out when I want to feel, uh, 1629 like, but that's again, probably embarrassing. I don't care. <laughs> and the, the beanie, the, uh, the little black and, and two white square beanie, I, uh, embroidered two little white squares on a beanie of mine, um, which is kind of my little, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's near and dear to my heart. It feels very much like me. It's strange to, yeah, it's strange to have kind of this two lives, two different realities. Like nobody knows who I am. So I go to the grocery store and it's entirely different. And then I come home and it's entirely different. It feels really like two separate uh, people, which is strange. Probably a lot of money to be made for uh, industrious therapists in the near future for, for, for digital identity as it catches on. Uh, yeah. Does anything about, oh, does anyone in your, in real life world know about your online identity? Uh, my mom. And I have one very close friend uh, that knows, but that's it. I like to keep it extremely separate. I feel like it keeps me grounded. And also I don't have to worry about, uh, I don't know. I just like being a non. I think it's, uh, I think it's the way to go if you can do it. 
And what, what percentage of your life is spent in each half of those worlds? Oh, it's, it's not healthy. It's unbalanced. Uh, I spend, gosh, probably three quarters of my waking hours, uh, either making AI or on Twitter or answering DMS or doing interviews or it's, it's very unbalanced. And then the other 25% is begrudgingly spent going to the grocery store or, you know, exercising or taking a shower. And, uh, I hate every minute of it. It's, it's, uh, I really enjoy being able to be plugged in, I suppose. I probably need to take some time off to do some like nature connection or, or something um, because my life is very digital right now. But uh, yeah. Yeah. I live in the mountains and I just, it's just, it's a beautiful place and it's just terrible how much time <laughs> I'm spending with JPEGs. Yeah, like, yeah. This is like such a abuse of this amazing privilege <laughs> I have of being in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, what the second thing I want to ask, dig more on being a non, like what, um, yeah. What, you know, what, what, why is that something that you would recommend to artists or to people in this community? Well, I feel like you can't take it back once you've doxxed, uh, unless you want to start over with a new account, you've always, you're always out. Um, if you're a non, you kind of always have the option. So if nothing else, I would encourage it for that. It's safer. You know, we are dealing with money. This is a custodial, uh, system. So it's not like you have protections, um, as this movement gets bigger and uh, we go through another cycle, you might be glad that you don't have to worry about that. Uh, I'm also, you know, a woman and there are a lot of uh, unhinged people on the internet specifically. So I like being able to sleep at night, <laughs> to be honest with you. I like not having to worry about uh, the same things that, say, female celebrities have to worry about. Not that I'm a celebrity, but with any kind of fame, particularly online, there come danger. Um, for certain people. And I like not worrying about that. Um, and then also, like I said, it keeps you grounded. You, uh, you kind of have separate sort of lives and separate selves. And I feel like maybe that's healthier than being entirely tied to one thing. Also, I feel like it's easier to be honest on social media, uh, and vulnerable and try new things if you're a non, because if you're not, then people from your real life are, reading and watching and knowing, and you're sort of shaped by what they'll think and how they'll say. It's like the classic Facebook effect back when (laughs) Facebook was relevant. Um, Yeah, I think Anon is good for that too. How do you stay sane on Twitter? One (laughs) thing I like when times get bad, I mean, one thing I've, one thing I've, I've learned is just Twitter is just such a bad medium because I think when people are arguing publicly, there's less willingness to give in. Um, it's also just writing tends to be a bad format. Um, I find like voice always humanizes people. And if people are arguing, like I just take it to DMS and we're best buddies, you know, Mm -hmm. but there's something about that public forum that can be really kind of, uh, just kind of a negative experience. And I'm curious, it sounds like you've had contention around your art form around other aspects. How, How have you stayed sane? Yeah. Yeah. The, the fighting, I definitely see it and it's definitely directed at me often, but it doesn't bother me actually. I, I am so sure of what I'm saying, that that part doesn't bother me. What does make me go crazy is uh, I'm an introvert. Um, I struggle with social interaction. It's draining. And so DMs, uh, I get a lot of them. Even with closed DMs, it's it's more than I can handle. Um, And there's an anxiety factor with being an introvert to answering them. It's, oh, I don't have a good answer yet. Uh, Let me wait a couple hours and I'll come back. And then a week's gone by and that person feels like you think you're too good for them or you're ignoring them or, you know, whatever. And um, it causes a lot of stress and a lot of emotional distress, actually, for me. Um, So, yeah, that's one really tough thing for me is, is keeping in contact with these connections and these friends Whereas tweeting, uh, I love because it's like using it as a diary. I just kind of put my thoughts out into the world and people can see them. And that's very comfortable for me. It's actually quite healing for me as an introvert to be able to do that. But the one-on-one talk is, is really tough. I have noticed that, that you, um, that you're very public with what you're feeling in a moment. Um, you know, it's kind of what I said earlier, just that authenticity is to me, such a core part of your brand. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. I, uh, I feel happy to get to connect with people in that way in sort of a public, uh, it feels safer. I don't know why it feels safer than talking one-on-one in DMs, but that one really scares me, triggers my anxiety, but, but talking on Twitter doesn't. Yeah. And I, you know, I, it, it's kind of funny, like for me, the DMs work for you, it's the public <laughs> yeah. stuff. And I, I, for me, the stuff that I just don't enjoy is the, is the back and forth comments when people are challenging you. And mm-hmm. sometimes I'll go back and I normally, 
uh, after one or two tweet, we'll just like their last post and move on. But sometimes uh, if I've had too much coffee, I'll keep chatting. And <laughs> yeah. That's the stuff that, that bugs me. But, but we're all, I mean, we're all just so different. Yeah. You know, every, every person has such different comfort levels in different areas. And I think that brings that out. One, one, one last one. I remember when the CC0 topic was kind of the topic du jour. It's clearly, yeah. I don't think it is right now, but that that was when you had strong opinions on or mm-hmm. may, where, where did you land on that? What's your view on CC0? <sighs> it's shifted, right? So back then I was pretty vocal about artists being able to choose to not go that route, which, you know, seems obvious in retrospect, but there are a lot of people that I respect and obviously the community respects that were speaking very strongly in favor of all artists should use CCO. Um, and I know that as an emerging artist, uh, the pressures of, you know, those respected collectors and people like that, you, you sort of feel a pressure to do those things. And so I was pretty vocal that you shouldn't have to. Um, and I still feel like you shouldn't have to, obviously, but working with AI has changed my thoughts on some things around intellectual property um, and copyright in that I feel that it's such a life-changing technology. It's so important for our species that the more data that it has, uh, the better. And that taking out data sets is akin to lobotomizing our best chance at uh, everything. <laughs> and so it's difficult for me to say, you know, this artist feels uncomfortable with their work being used in a training data set to learn from, so we will remove it. Um, at the same time, I'm not in charge of that decision. But to me, it feels like transformative use. Uh, it feels like it should be fine. And with my work as well, someone could take all of my work right now and feed it into a blank model, AI model, and have work that looks like it was made by me. And there's nothing I can do about that. Um, And I feel like I shouldn't need to. Like if someone did that, I feel like it would be in my style. And with blockchain being provably linked back to me um, and my work that was earlier than theirs, then it's kind of just like an inspiration that's feeding eyeballs back to my work eventually, and also spreading the style that I love to more people and more artists. Why wouldn't I love that? Um, but again, I don't speak for everyone, but that's, that's sort of how my opinions have changed. Is your work CC0 now? It is not. Uh, I do have some contention. Like I've, One thing I've done, uh, Brain Drops, for example, I made it so that collectors, if you own the piece, you have the rights to do any kind of uh, physical printing, physical sales, put it on, you know, a notebook or a t-shirt or whatever you want. You have all the rights to that. Um, but it's not completely CCO. I am thinking about ways that I could do that with future collections without, uh, because there are so many opinions on the subject, I don't want to disturb the collectors that would disagree with it, uh, that have supported me. I'm trying to find the best way to move forward with doing something with it, but I am not sure what that would be yet. Nice. Yeah. And I, I mean, one of, one of, one of my views in this space is I think there's a lot of talking about what people should and shouldn't do. Mm-hmm. And I think this is just kind of like the great thing about a free market is you can be a CC zero artist and, or you don't have to be one and buyers can decide which one they want to buy, Yeah, you know? And if people say, I like CC zero, like very easy decision who not to buy. If people say they're all sort, you know, I mean, royalties and whatnot have gotten more controversial lately, but like you don't have to buy people who do the things you don't want to with their contract, with whatever, you know? And I think that's always just like, but I think telling artists what to do and what not to do, like the easiest way is just to vote with your wallet. And, but that's just, I guess my, no, my I, personal I, I agree. I do agree. I, I also have very strong opinions on royalties, but we can talk about that some other time, but uh, <laughs> different discussion, but yeah, I would agree with you there. Fair enough. And I'll end with kind of the same question I started with. I started with, what do you think people misunderstand about AI art? What do you think people in your real world life misunderstand about NFTs? <laughs> I'm, always, I'm always curious. People who get into this, we're all struggling, not struggling, but we're all faced with 90% of the people we know just don't get this movement. But what, what do you think people misunderstand? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm still hearing the right click save arguments. That's still taking a long time to sink in that that doesn't matter. Um, that, that saving and sharing is sort of part of baked into the pie. It's, it's part of what makes it special is you can do that all you want and it'll still drive value back to the original and everyone benefits. It's kind of like millennial file share culture made economic model, which is super cool for me. Um, but also I think one big misunderstanding is there's no delineation in people's minds between PFPs 
uh, and fine art. Um, it's sort of one thing. And I think we are splitting paths there. 4156 had a good thread several months ago about how there will be a divergence in the PFP market and the fine art market. And uh, that has started to come to pass. So I think as galleries and museums and uh, sort of trad bastions of art uh, start filling them their collections with NFTs, um, which is beginning to happen, then that distinction will be made. But for now, it's it's all one big jumble for sure. What do you think those two paths, like what path do you think art's going to go down and what path do you think uh, PFPs are going to go down? PFPs are membership to a social club. Um, they are access to a network. Uh, punks being a good example, although I would argue punks are also uh, art history. But then art is, you know, an investment class of its own, as well as, you know, collected for enjoyment or appreciation. Um, it's not so much membership to a club. So I think probably PFPs will lean into utility more as time goes on, whereas art will lean away from utility um, and into sort of being a time capsule of a movement that, like AI, is uh, going to transform how we think about ownership. And uh, as we move to a more digital civilization, how we think about ourselves and what we own and how we share it. Um, don't get me started on metaverses. Anyway, yeah, I, I think, uh, yeah, that'll be a, a path that'll delineate a lot before the next uh, full cycle and be very clear at that point. Cool. Well, thank you very, very much for coming on. Uh, I'm trying to keep these to an hour. We've hit about an hour, but I, you know, especially given we both have these pink hair punks, yeah. I feel like I've been associated with you for a long time. Yeah. And, you know, you're just such a, a positive force in the industry. Uh, it, it's really nice to get to chat with you, learn about AI art, something I knew nothing about until I started uh, listening to your podcast. So it's really uh, fun to get I'm to chat. I'm honored. Thank you so much for having me on. And I'm sorry we get mistaken for each other a lot. People will adjust. <laughs> It'll be good. Yeah. You know, well, there's no one I'd rather get mistaken <laughs> for. At least you're like a good person doing good things in the industry. That's very kind. I try to hold up, uh, I try to hold up my side of the pink hair punk bargain and, and be honest and good and, you know, trying to impact the space for the better. But uh, sometimes maybe I'm, you know, who knows? I do my best. No, we're quantitative, qualitative. It's a great duo. <laughs> exactly. All right. Thanks, Claire. All right. That is it for this episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you would like to help us out, head on over to proof.xyz and click on the reviews button at the very top and leave us a five-star review. Thanks so much. Take care.